You'll recognize that as the intro to the classic song Just My Imagination by The Temptations from 1970. Welcome, listeners. I'm David Winkler, sitting in again for Sean Griffin on A Writer's World here on KWNK. Today's program is called A Hymn to the Imagination. Now, as a public school teacher, I attended any number of boring, inessential workshops. But if you were imaginative enough, you could find ways to duck out of them. Although I do remember in one workshop, as an opening exercise, we were given the task of writing down which of the following gifts we would prefer to be imbued with if we had the choice. Superior intelligence, outstanding athletic ability, incredible wealth, or a rich imagination. Then we had to discuss the reason behind our choice. My answer was, and still is, a rich imagination. How drab and colorless life would be without the faculty to envision new possibilities. For me, that's what imagination is, possibilities that exist outside our current reality. They're invisible until we coax them into existence, be it a sweater, a lyrical poem, a movie script, a carpet cleaner, a donut. I live at the very northern tip of Vermont, right across from Canada. There's not much here, really, except trees and mountains, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yet, just up the road, nine miles or so, there's a Dunkin' Donuts. In 1950, an eighth-grade dropout named Bill Rosenberg conceived of a donut stand, which he eventually turned into a multi-million-dollar global enterprise, Dunkin' Donuts. It's hard to imagine a single arena of human endeavor where imagination does not apply. But since this is a writer's world, I'll mostly confine my meditation to literature. It's a big subject, and we'll see where it leads. Hans Christian Andersen once wrote, The world is a series of miracles, but we're so used to them, we call them ordinary things. So it's a matter of turning lead into gold, making what's ordinary extraordinary. While preparing for this program, I thought of King Lear's cynical exclamation in Act 4, When we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. Now, by fools, he means ordinary people, not clowns or court jesters, but you and me. Ironically, there is no greater candidate for a real fool in that play than Lear himself, when you consider how he foolishly divides his kingdom among his three daughters. For all his alleged wisdom, Lear suffers from a severe failure of imagination. Recently, I opened at random Joan Didion's wonderful collection of essays, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, and landed on this sentence. 
I have already lost touch with a couple of people I used to be. What an intriguing statement. It lured me into the essay, which is called On Keeping a Notebook. Now, as you might suspect, Didion's essay has everything to do with possibility and nothing to do with actuality. In Didion's notebook, there are no reminders to herself of oil changes or kitchen repairs or Aunt Marion stopped by this afternoon to return my silk blouse. No, she strives rather to discover who she is, who she used to be, and who she's in the process of becoming. She does this by digging deep into her emotional and intellectual life in order to remember what it was like to be me. Didion seems to be saying to herself, let you and I stay in touch. For this to happen, memory and imagination must operate symbiotically by writing. A great deal of introspection is required as well as imagination in order to create a fresh synthesis of self. I have never been much of a reader of Sigmund Freud, although I do occasionally turn to some of his essays, such as The Relation of the Poet to Daydreaming. In that essay, Freud reminds us that play and daydreaming begin in childhood, that the child is father to the man, and imagination comes as naturally to the child as a heartbeat. The child does what all artists learn to do, which is, and I quote Freud's essay, to rearrange the things of his world and order it in a new way that pleases him better. That is to say, making new things happen on the page, on the canvas, on the keyboard, on the stage of life. Is there any among us who is not capable of dreaming up a story, a poem, or interactions among imaginary figures? To amuse his three young daughters, Susie, Clara, and Jean, Mark Twain would point out objects on the mantelpiece that stretched from one end to the other. He made up a story that began with the first object on the shelf and end with the last one. Twain's spontaneous use of inanimate objects can apply to just about anything. Salt and pepper shakers, a knife, a fork, a spoon, throw in a napkin or anything you please and give them life. Think of Charlie Chaplin's masterful bread and roll dance in his film, The Gold Rush. Two rolls, two forks, that's it. One is never too old to play out the secret charms of make-believe. But that's what acts of imagination are, make-believe, until they are not. The architect envisions the possibility of a bridge or a building, then makes it appear. Most of us have heard the story of how Rodin created his sculptures. He said he imagined a figure in a block of marble, then chiseled out everything except the figure. That's simple, huh? Freud was a champion of artists, especially poets. He seemed always to be reading and writing about them. Consider how he named certain psychoanalytic theories after literary characters, the Electra Complex, and the Oedipus complex. He even went so far as to state that everywhere I go, I find some poet has already been there. Although Joan Didion doesn't mention Freud in her essay, her rationale for keeping a journal is to look inward, to discover new truths about herself, which at its base is what Freud is about, self-discovery, especially in his case, 
through dreams. In dreams, there is poetry. Vincent van Gogh divined poetry hidden in nearly everything he saw. Woodcutters, potato diggers, fishing boats, streetwalkers, sunflowers, wheat fields, olive trees, starry nights. His letters to his brother Theo comprise one of the most compelling autobiographies ever written, even though, ironically, he had no idea that anyone besides Theo would see it. Most scholars agree that had Vincent never made a single brushstroke, heaven forbid, his letters would still be revered, and he would be known as the great literary artist that he was. The letters explore the inner workings of a soul in progress as vividly as any book I know. The darkness, pain, ecstasy, and sheer wonder that helmed the lives of artists. For art was never an avocation for Van Gogh, it was his religion. At one point he complained to Theo, My youth is gone. I mean, the time when one feels so lighthearted and carefree. He was 27 when he wrote that. Later on, he writes, It often happens that I feel so downhearted when people are hostile and indifferent that I lose my courage. Then I cheer up again, and I go back to my work and laugh at it. People have often wondered, was Vincent bipolar? Many have concluded so, but it's never been proven. He was like many artists with his trials in spirit and intellect. Theories abound, but when I read his letters, I see a man tormented not only by lack of money and supplies, but by his own creative demons. He felt deeply. For Vincent, as an artist, feeling came first, always. He mentions this time and again. He disdained the art academies where students were taught to paint correctly and with anatomical precision. His philosophy was to paint what he felt, not what he saw. His impression of nature meant much more to him than botanical accuracy. Again, he considered the real artists do not paint things as they are, but as they are felt. However, most of us aren't Van Gogh. We don't leap out of bed in the morning with the thought of painting the Pietà or composing Figaro's wedding or writing Hamlet. That doesn't mean we're not capable of transforming lead into gold. If I believed that were the case, I never would have succeeded as a teacher. Being a teacher means helping kids discover their souls. That sounds like a grandiose statement, and perhaps it is, but there's truth in it. To seek out new possibilities for ourselves and to help others discover their own is what it means to be alive. And at the heart of these possibilities is that golden word, imagination. Each of us has people in our lives, friends, family members, colleagues, who are creative in one way or another, and they are to be valued. I have a longtime friend in Claremont, California, Tom Fasano, who strikes me as a dynamo of creativity. He is a writer, photographer, publisher, book editor, cartoonist, political satirist, and lately a filmmaker. Clearly a very talented guy and virtual renaissance man. He does these things for his own satisfaction, sees things and rearranges them into a pleasing new reality. 
as does the regular host of this program, Sean Griffin, who, as I speak, is off in Granada, Spain, no doubt producing lovely watercolors and new poetry. Or, in Milton's words, he's off to fresh woods and pastures green. But what of those who seem incapable of making a dream come true? I'm committed to the notion that each of us has a talent, perhaps latent, perhaps undeveloped. But then I wonder if that's strictly true in every case. I'm currently rereading Flaubert's Madame Bovary, this time the Lydia Davis translation, which is glorious, by the way. Emma Bovary, like Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, is mired in the suffocating conformity and conventions of provincial life. She can envision no way out, even though she's aware of the circumstances crushing her. And that's her tragedy, the fact that she's aware and can't do anything about it. In Flaubert's novel, we find Emma immersed in existential despair. She's married to a husband who bores her and is surrounded by people unworthy of her romantic daydreams, even her adulterous lovers, Rudolf and Leon, who ultimately give her no much pleasure or satisfaction than she could give herself. I often find myself wishing I could reach into the novel and give her a good shaking. Wake up, woman, and smell the rhododendrons. For Emma Bovary, it may not be a failure of imagination so much as an absence of one. Madame Bovary is a beautiful book set in a sordid world. There are plenty of other literary heroines who rise above the fray to give us hope and inspiration through their upbeat, imaginative wiles. First in my personal pantheon is Scheherazade from the Arabian Nights. On my list also are Joe March, Miss Marple, Seely in Alice Walker's The Color Purple, Anne Augusta in Graham Greene's Travels with My Aunt, Toni Morrison's Zula, Pippi Longstocking, Hermione Granger, Janie Crawford, and Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Elizabeth Salander in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Portia in The Merchant of Venice, Freya of Norse Mythology, Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, and many, many, so many more. These are people, I dare call them people, who bring enchantment into our lives. Whenever in my own writing I find myself weltering in a dead sea of platitudes, which is more often than I care to admit, my remedy is to dip into either Shakespeare's sonnets or Keats's odes. They are my go-to inspirations, chiefly due to the elegance of the language. Of course, that doesn't always work. Sometimes I have to ride it out by going for a walk, listening to music, or sipping wine. The imagination can be an impish beast. It hides in secret pockets or lurks in subconscious reservoirs, then it shines brightly forth to guide our pens across the page to new heights of grandeur, or so we like to imagine. And sometimes it is so. Well, this concludes today's program on a hymn to the imagination. The pieces of literature I referred to can be found in Reno at Sundance Books and Music or in Las Vegas at the Writer's Block. They're open and we need them. Please join us in the collective ethosphere 
every other Sunday at 5 p.m. For another meditation on words, or stream it at kwnkradio.org. Meanwhile, spread a little kindness wherever you happen to be, and apply your imagination whenever possible. Tell